you're visiting, we're working through the story, which is a chronological Bible, um, all the events linked. And today in chapter 4, this week, <coughs> we've been looking at chapter 4, which has got to do with the Exodus. And uh, <coughs> rather than read some scriptures, we've got a great video that sort of lays out the story and uses an incredible artist. So uh, let's capture chapter 4 of the story on the screen. After Joseph and his brothers died, the population of Israelites living in Egypt exploded. It grew so large that the new pharaoh was fearful that they would form an army against Egypt. So he made the Israelites slaves, forcing them to make bricks all day long. Then Pharaoh took it a step further. He issued a ruling that all newborn Hebrew boys should be killed. Soon after that, an Israelite woman gave birth to a son. Fearful he would be killed, she put him in a basket and placed him in the Nile River. The basket floated downstream and was found by Pharaoh's daughter. She raised the boy in Pharaoh's palace as if he were her own child. She named him Moses. Years later, Moses saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave. Moses became angry and murdered the Egyptian. Fearing for his own life, Moses fled into the wilderness where he became a shepherd. One day while he was tending his flock, he saw something incredible. A bush that was engulfed in flames but was not burning up. Then Moses heard God's voice coming from the bush. God had seen the suffering of the Israelites and wanted Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses went back to Egypt and met with Pharaoh. He asked that the Israelites be given a short break from their labor to hold a festival to worship God. Pharaoh not only denied the request, but made the Israelites work even more difficult to punish them. But this was just the beginning. To prove that God was on Israel's side, God brought great disasters called plagues on Egypt. God made all the water of Egypt turn into blood, filled the land with frogs and insects, sent diseases to kill the Egyptian animals, gave the people terrible sores, and brought terrible thunderstorms and terrifying darkness. Then God sent one final plague. God protected the Israelites by giving instructions to each family to take a perfect sheep, sacrifice it, and put its blood on the door frames of their houses. The Israelites did what God commanded. At midnight, God moved throughout Egypt, and every firstborn son, including Pharaoh's, were killed. But God passed over every house that had blood on its doorframe. Pharaoh was so overwhelmed that he practically begged the Israelites to leave. So in the middle of the night, after living there for 430 years, the Israelites left Egypt. However, Pharaoh once again changed his mind and sent his armies after the Israelites. They chased them for miles until finally they trapped the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea. But God instructed Moses to strike the water with his walking stick. When he did, a strong wind blew across the sea, creating dry land for the Israelites to walk across. After they reached the other side, God caused the water to crash back down, drowning all of the Egyptians who were following close behind. 
the Israelites journeyed far away from Egypt. Along the way, God took care of them, giving them quail in the evenings and flaky bread called manna in the mornings. Many times the Israelites complained about their living conditions, but Moses would remind them of God's goodness and continue to lead them toward the land God had promised them. I'm always amazed by the gifts of artists. It's a great visualization of a lot packed in chapter 4 of the story. And I want us to pull out a couple truths from this week that I think speak to us. Um, The first thing that I want us to talk about is God is using another imperfect human. We saw that with Abram. uh, We saw that with Jacob. And we're going to continue to see that throughout the whole story. That God is not just willing, but God delights in using people that don't feel qualified. And we see this with Moses in his own words. Um, We won't read the whole passage, but over in Exodus 3, Moses is now an adult. He's living out in what we would call the Sinai Peninsula. He has really left Egypt behind. As they, they showed in the ark, he had killed an Egyptian official and fled. Now he's married a woman out in the Sinai, and is living with her family and a shepherd with his own flocks. And of course, God comes to him in the burning bush. And I want to read just a passage, a short passage from Exodus 3. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 7, where the Lord says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, And I am concerned about their suffering. That is a great passage in just a couple verses of the heart of God. He sees, he hears, and he cares. Moses doesn't realize. So far, Moses is like, hey, this is good news. Till he hears the rest of what God has to say. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And again, Moses is like, yeah, good. I'm glad you're finally working, God. But then it's in verse 10, where God says, So, now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And that's where Moses got really nervous. Because he did not in any way feel qualified for what God was asking him to do. In fact, in verse 11, he starts to argue with God. But Moses said to God, who am I that should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And you've got to remember, Moses had grown up, raised by uh, part of the family, so he knew the power of Egypt. He knew that firsthand. He had grown up with the armies of Egypt and the government of Egypt and the size and scope of Egypt. And because he knew what God was saying and how difficult it would be to free Israel from, at that point, Egypt was the dominant superpower of the the known world. So he says, 
I can't do this, God. There is no way. You've got the wrong guy. And, of course, God has exactly the right guy. And we saw that before, and I'm not going to spend much time on it because we looked at it with Abram. But it is a continuing theme that we're going to see and a theme that speaks to us. God doesn't evaluate us like we do. We were talking in Sunday school this morning. We are a nation of people who are self-reliant, and so that pushes us to look at our qualifications, our education, our training, our intelligence, our strength. And anytime we do that, we often will come up and say, the account doesn't balance. There's not enough in my favor. I can't do that. And so God may be prompting us to do something or go talk to somebody or go on a mission trip or whatever it might be, and we say, I look at myself and I say, I can't do this. And God says, well, if I was using that evaluation method, I would agree with you. You see, it's not that God sees Moses differently than Moses sees Moses. God is using a different equation. God says, sure, Moses, you're not an eloquent speaker. And you're not this, and you're not this, and you've got this weakness, and you don't have any power compared to Egypt. And God says, I got all that. But what you're not putting in your equation is the God factor. And just like we sang and read in that scripture, we have a God who goes before us and a God who comes behind us. The God who could make the universe and a God who can stop the Nile River and turn it to blood. And I love if you read the story and you go through the plagues, I just think it's great. The first few miracles, the Egyptian magicians say, oh, we can do that. And they use some of their magic and they pull off the same plagues. But about halfway through the process, the Egyptians start saying, oh, we can't do that. Oh, we can't do that. And God starts taking him into a realm way beyond human ability. And God starts working real big miracles. But you see, that's the God who said, Moses, with me, you can do it. We got Egypt covered, don't worry. I will go before you and I will come after you. Now, before we leave Moses, we need to let that speak to us. Because sometimes in our lives today, God asks us to do something. Maybe not as big as go into Egypt and tackle the whole country. But sometimes we feel it's just as hard. It could be to go speak to somebody and talk about something spiritual. It could be to invite somebody to do something. It could be to see something in the bulletin and say, you know, I really could help with that. Or I feel like God wants me to help with that. Or whatever it might be. And we use our equation and we say, God, I can't do that. You're kidding me, right? And we say, no. And the whole time, just like Moses is God is saying, I see your limitations, but you're not taking into account the God factor. I want you to do this and I will be with you. I will help you like I did Moses. I will make you capable. I love the passage, I've always remembered it as a minister, where Paul says, in myself, I am competent to do nothing. 
But God makes us competent as ministers of the gospel. That's what he did with Moses. And we need to learn from this chapter of the story, that's the kind of God we have today. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. And if he comes to you or me and he says, Jim, I need you to do this. I need you to talk to this person. I need you to help with this event or get involved in this ministry. And we say, oh, not me. We need to hear again what he said to Moses. Yeah, you. And I will make you competent. Take into account the God factor. So the next time you start to say no, hesitate and ask God, is this really what you want me to do? Then I'll do it and trust you to make me competent. But I think there's a bigger lesson for us out of this story, this chapter of the story, and that is how much God cares. Israel is in captivity. They have been in captivity for hundreds of years. It says when they go out that they had been there over 400 years. I was trying to relate that to us today. And so I used the internet and went 400 years back from today, which brought me to 1613. And so I did an internet search on what was going on in 1613. How far back is that? I'm sure you all know. right? Jamestown was being settled. Even before Plymouth, the very first, pil- not pilgrims, settlers were coming to North America from Europe, and Jamestown was being settled. Now, if you think about that and say, from then till now, we've been slaves and suffering. That's a long time. I think most of us, if we have to suffer for a year, we put that in the category of a long time. If there's some problem in our life that won't go away, and we have to go 12 months, you know, after a week, I get impatient with God. Come on, God, I've been asking, you know, Seven days now, what, what's up? So to, to, to look at Israel and say 400 years, it brings us to a point where we start to say, don't we, does God care? Is he listening? Does prayer matter? Did I do something wrong and he's punishing me? Satan puts all kinds of thoughts in our head. And that long period of waiting, however long it may be, starts to build a chasm between us and God. And what we need to hear is that God does care. Israel had been there a long time, but that didn't mean that God didn't care. He is paying attention. I love those, those active verbs in that passage where it says, God says, I have heard the cry of my people. I am seeing their suffering. I am concerned. I am coming down to help. The long waiting did not mean God wasn't seen and that God didn't care. Now, we don't like the long part, but God had a purpose in that. And I don't claim to know that we fully understand it. But what I do want us to see is that God had always known there would have to be this long period of suffering. Now, we need to go back to Genesis. 
in Genesis 15, and this is probably over 500 years before Israel was slaves in Egypt. I want you to read what God had said to Abraham, the great-great-great-great-grandfather of all these people suffering. And God warns him of what's going to come. Way back with Abraham in Genesis 15, here's what God says. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and after, afterward they will come out with great possessions. There's something we need to learn about God there. Our God. And that is He is willing to ask us to go through tough times that we would call suffering sometimes for long periods because there is a more important purpose. We're very immediate people. We don't like any form of suffering. If I get aches, I'm grabbing the Advil. I don't want to live with aches. I don't want to live with prolonged suffering. We like a pain-free life. So it's hard for us to hear of a God who says, for a bigger purpose, I will ask you to go through a period of suffering. We saw that last year with Joseph, uh, last week with Joseph in chapter 3. He had 22 years of suffering, but 77 years of blessing. But those 22 years got to be real long for Joseph, I'm sure, as he sat in prison. But God said, there is a bigger purpose, and I need the 22 to give you the 77. God does the same thing with Israel. Suffering can be a necessary thing. And I understand that's hard to hear. I don't like to hear it. But it is a reality we have to prepare for because it doesn't mean that God isn't listening and that God doesn't care. That's the lie Satan gives us. And we need to hear it is a lie. It's not true. God does care. He is seen. And he is working in his way and his time. Now, I just want to throw out some possible reasons to help us get our head around why he had Israel be slaves for 400 years. One is, God put them in Goshen, which was an extremely fertile place, one of the most fertile places probably in the Mediterranean at that time, and Israel just mushroomed as far as population. They went <clears throat> into Egypt as one tribe, and they came out a, a huge nation. He put them away in an incubator to multiply greatly. Another reason is Israel was protected from intermarrying. One of the things Israel always wrestled with was intermarrying and losing their own identity, just becoming part of the mixture. As slaves in Egypt, they were, in a sense, isolated. No Egyptian was going to marry a Jew, and they didn't intermarry. They didn't jump into other gods. They were kept in one sense, even though they were right in the middle of Egypt, they were isolated. Had they stayed in Israel with all the Canaanites, they would have intermarried 
may have intermarried and the nation could have vanished as a separate people. Another option. Israel was humbled. They didn't come out of Egypt saying, look at a great nation we are. Look how powerful we are. They came out of Egypt totally powerless, knowing they had to depend on God. Abram had been successful. Jacob had been successful. They could have become a successful nation in Israel, but they would have relied on themselves. That didn't happen in Egypt. Israel would carry with them forever, to this day, proof of what they could do with God as he delivered them through the plagues and the dividing of the Red Sea. They understood. And lastly, all of the world at that time was given a testimony of the power of Jehovah God, the God of Israel, who humbled Egypt, the mightiest nation on earth. Jehovah was bigger, and everybody knew it. It was in the news that everybody saw. So God uses ordinary people, and God doesn't forget us. He does care, but there's one other lesson, and that is we have a powerful God. As I said, he humbled the mightiest nation on earth, and that nation did not humble easily. God had to go through a a series, a cycle of plagues, in some ways each one getting more drastic. Because Egypt wasn't going to give in lightly. Pharaoh would start and then he'd back away. He'd change his mind. He'd say, no, I'm not letting go of all these slaves. It's our workforce. God said, okay. And in a sense, God had to take the gloves off. But God was going to show Egypt, I am mightier than you. We serve a mighty God. He was mighty then and he is mighty today. That power is available to us. I want to read a passage and then tell you a story. But I think one of, here's one of the things we get into. We are so sophisticated and modern, and we under so much stand, understand so much about how things work in the real world that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the spiritual world and miracles and God's power. And we say, oh, of course it worked for Moses. Of course God divided the Red Sea then... But we don't think in those terms today. We tend to spend more of our time thinking about what you and I can do if we work together and get organized. And not about what God can do. There is something Paul says I want us to read about God's power for us. This same power that humbled Egypt. Uh, Over in Ephesians 1. If you want to turn there. Paul has an interesting prayer for the Christians. And how they might know God's power. He says, I'm praying for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, his holy people, and verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, stop for just a second, then we're going to read the next verse. So keep your finger there. Notice what Paul is praying. The power and the hope already exist. It's not that God will loosen his power. His prayer is that you might get it. That you might understand what you already have. 
But if you don't know that it's there, if you don't believe in it, it's not going to help you. So Paul says, my prayer is that you will comprehend what you already have. And the third thing we already have is this incredibly great power of God available to us. Now, he, Paul goes on to, in a sense, illustrate that power of God. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. The power available to us is not only the power that could divide the Red Sea and humble Egypt, it is the power that God could raise Christ back to life from the dead. And that power, Paul says, I pray you'll get it. That power is available to you. We lament a lot about the status of the church in the United States today. And the condition of our nation and the culture and all of that. But have you ever thought about why is that? And people will talk, you'll hear Christians talk about, well... We're not doing our job as the church, etc. Last week, Dave Butts was here and was leading a prayer seminar. And he told a story during that seminar. He had a year earlier, he was at a prayer conference for prayer leaders from all over the world. But the prayer conference was in Indonesia. If you're not aware of it, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world as far as population. Not geography, but population. There are more Muslims living in Indonesia than any other nation on earth. And that's where they had the prayer conference. Over 2,000 prayer leaders from all over the world were gathered in Indonesia. And one of the reasons they were there is the church is exploding in Indonesia. The official government figures are that there's 10% of Indonesia is Christian. The church is growing so fast, they think the reality is probably 20%. And in the cities, it's almost 40%. In the most Muslim nation on earth, and a lot of us in the U.S. think you can't evangelize Muslims. But God says, I can handle them. I can handle Egypt. Now, here's what was so cool. Dave said, you know why the church is exploding in Indonesia? He got to see in that country today, there are over 500 prayer towers. Muslims build minarets to call people to worship Allah. The Christians in Indonesia have built prayer towers. And 24-7, 365 days a year, those towers are manned by Christians praying for the, that Christ would come to Indonesia. 500 of these prayer towers staffed constantly, day and night, with Christians praying. And you wonder why evangelism is happening in Indonesia and the church is growing there? But you see, the lesson for us in America is they're relying on God's power. We all know what we do in America. We're doing it. Another program, another book to buy, and another video series. And we will reach our country. How's that working for us? Because we're relying on our power, not God's power. 
It was just such a strong lesson to me. And when we are the weakest, we're forced to rely on God. And in that moment, we plug into the real power, the power of God, the power Paul prays for and says, I want you to understand what you have at your disposal. The power of Almighty God who can humble Egypt. Who can raise Christ from the dead? That power can be ours if we come to him. That's why God was thrilled to use somebody weak like Moses. Because he knew it would be God's power that freed Israel from Egypt. Well, there's one other lesson from this chapter of the story, this part of God's story. And that is we have a powerful God who will rescue us. The tenth and final plague was, of course, the, of course, the death angel. And Moses was told in advance, I'm going to send my death angel across Egypt and every home, the firstborn will die. But you can be spared. If you will take this lamb and you will keep this lamb so that it becomes precious in the family. And after a few days, when that lamb is precious, you will sacrifice it. You'll kill it, you'll butcher it, and you'll have a dinner and you'll eat it, but you'll also take the blood of that lamb and spread it on the door frame of your front door. And then, when the death angel comes by, he will not touch your home. You will be saved from death, rescued. And Israel does that. Even Pharaoh's son dies. But the firstborn of the Israelites live. Still today, the Jews celebrate Passover. Remembering that night, that rescue. But we as Christians know that that Passover angel, that death of that lamb, was a shadow out in front of a bigger reality. The technical term theologians use is foreshadowing. All it means is sometimes, you know, depending on the angle of the sun, the shadow's out in front of the real thing, not behind it. So you actually see the shadow, and then you look up to see what's causing the shadow. That was this lamb in Egypt. And it was just a shadow of something much bigger, and that is when Christ would become a lamb. In John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those lambs that were killed in the homes of Israel in ancient Egypt to save them from the death angel was just a shadow of a greater lamb. When God himself, as Jesus would come to earth and be precious and loved, be perfect and spotless like the lambs? And who would die? And his blood shed on the cross could become ours for our lives. If we will spread the blood of Jesus on the doors of our lives, we too can be rescued. We saw a hint of it. In chapter 4, the story in Egypt. But we know, living in this day, what that was really about. 
what God would do again to save and deliver from death. But he would do it with his own son at his own life's expense. And that's why we've waited for communion today in our worship service. That today we might have a time to take the bread and the cup as reminders of Jesus' body and blood when he was sacrificed to be our lamb so that you and I could be shed, spared from death if we will spread his blood on our lives. Have him as our Savior and Lord. We're going to sing a song, and I would ask you to use that song to prepare your heart to celebrate the Lamb who was sacrificed so you could be delivered.